Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. And as always, at the end of the month, we do a bit of a news docket type uh, episode with Emily Dushinsky, who is the culture editor over at The Federalist, a shaper of intrepid young minds over at Young America's Foundation, host of Rising on Fridays, general cultural milieu uh, person and last but not least, she is a fellow here with us at Independent Women's Forum. So she is a girl about town, or at least about podcasts. Um, and she, she joins us every every month at the end of the month, and we're going to talk through some of the things that we thought were interesting this month. Um, Emily, I feel like last time we did this, uh, we were kind of uncharacteristically optimistic uh, because this is when Elon Musk's bid buying twitter had gone through and i was like i'm really shocked that happened well it seems like there's a bit of a empire strikes back vibe going on right now obviously we have the allegations um against the me too allegations against elon musk based on uh this this two hundred fifty thousand dollar payout to a flight attendant um there are some there seem to be some issues with the deal itself um something about that i don't understand and proudly refuse to learn how to understand about like the platform itself and how many you're a lawyer <laughs> and whether or not they like report the percentage of bots to like some government agency. I don't know. Um, but Emily, are, are you still relatively optimistic? Do you think this is going to go through or these attacks are going to work or are they just, is the timing of these attacks so obvious that at this point, even somebody who's not terminally online is not really interested in any of this stuff has a healthy skepticism of the timing of this kind of stuff. Well, it's interesting because I mean, Elon Musk already had plenty of, um, uh, I guess skeletons or like luggage to bring with him into the deal. Um, and so I don't feel like I'm less pessimistic. I think it's actually happening exactly as you expected it to, which is to, to, um, happen in fits and starts and hit all kinds of obstacles and then sort of become a question of like, well, I guess we'll just see what happens. Um, but you, I think we're prescient in saying this isn't just going like the money here is not just going to let Musk steamroll um his way into the building um it's it's not just going to be you know somebody like elon musk saying here's the cash now give me the keys to the kingdom that's clearly not what's going to happen and it hasn't been what happened so i still i think it's still if elon musk really wants to buy twitter and be in charge of twitter um i think he will absolutely be in charge of Twitter. I think he will buy Twitter and I think he will um, exert as much control as he wants. I think he's already proven that he will take the arrows he wants to take. I, I think people are reading into his Twitter messages, which are um, clearly, I think, calculated business maneuvers every time he tweets something relevant to Twitter. And even when he tweets things like uh, that, he likes chocolate milk. I think it's trolling a little bit. He's in the middle of a multi-billion dollar deal. Um, and I think trying to signal that it's not his everything and that he still, uh, you know, has a, a massive, uh, massive empire outside of Twitter. So all that is to say, and as I feel like I'm in the same place, which is kind of cautiously optimistic that his interest in Twitter, whether it works or not, will at least send a, a 
a signal at worst and at best will give him an opportunity to model how to run a company better um, with, you know, little regard for the silliness that we get bogged down in now. But I actually really think looking back on that last podcast we did, and by the way, this is how I keep track of time now. I know it's the end of the month every time and as um, pings me about the, the podcast. So it's helpful. It's a good way to keep time. Um, it's sort of like the ancient Mayans. Um, and- <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, and as you were, I, I think actually you predicted sort of exactly what we're seeing unfold oh i don't know uh i I predicted it wouldn't happen at all so i feel like i I was overly maybe pessimistic but But it really um, could i mean it it seems like that's a a more plausible outcome right now yeah i mean look one hopes that a person still has to be like smart and competent and a little bit ruthless to actually make billions of dollars i mean one hopes right like that that's that's the hope is that in fact, if, if if somebody like Elon Musk has billions and billions of dollars that, you know, he he is used to dealing with setbacks and used to dealing with with sort of um, even this kind of opposition. This is not his obviously he's not new to the spotlight. He's just new to this particular kind of spotlight. So I'm sure it's not the first time he sort of dealt with this. Um, I, I guess the second part of my question, though, with how this goes through even if it even if it does go through, um, but if it doesn't as well, what does this do to already tenuous um, sort of trust in in the game not being rigged? Like, first of all, if if the richest man in the world can't buy a company because he has said some things that stepped out of line uh, with with the dominant narrative, right? What does that? What hope does that leave for the rest of us? But on on the flip side, on the sort of optimistic side, do you think that people are going to be like? these attacks seem to me be so transparent in terms of the timing, right? Um, even, even there's like starting, they're starting to write up in, in the New York times, wall street journal, places like that. Um, uh, problems with, with Tesla problems with his companies, all of this stuff, which, which might all be true, right? I, I'm not saying that it isn't, but is this so transparent as to be kind of a red pill in itself for people who maybe aren't like in our sort of, circles or, or, um, you know, spending a lot of time on Twitter or watching rising or places like that. Right. Um, you know, (laughs) it seems like this really broke into the mainstream because of of who he is. And then now correspondingly, the people who are watching this from the mainstream, are they going to get acquire that like deep skepticism that, you know, allows us to have the kind of conversations that we did last time about whether or not he even be able to, to make this deal happen. Right. Is this going to is this going to red pill the normies? Right. Watching him suddenly like Im- immediately a Me Too allegation comes out about him. Right. Whether true or false, it's certainly been around for, you know, for years and nobody was interested in putting it into the public until just now. So does this is is this the, the sort of straw for a uh, final straw for a lot of people who maybe do still have some faith in, in media and the system more broadly? Yeah. And as you and I have been talking about how Me Too like red pilled a lot of normal people for years, literally at at this point. Um, And so anytime I think it resurfaces in especially towards somebody who we should not let it be lost is is at the caliber of hosting Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Night Live isn't what it once was, but for them to select you as a host, I think says something about your stature and popular culture and your appeal outside of just our political conversations or our um, entertainment 
entertainment media conversations. So I, I think what will be interesting, um, and, and while you were talking, and as I was pulling up a passage from a Scott Lincecum piece in the dispatch, um, where he says, he's commenting on Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and uh, basically saying, listen, the new right has just completely destroyed itself. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I will read the exact quote. He says, the alleged impossibility of such changes, in fact, was a core part of the new, quote, conservative argument for regulating Twitter, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other tech companies allegedly biased against the right's views. The brute force of government was required in the special case because, quote, free markets simply couldn't solve the problem of ultra-powerful tech giants. Things like, quote, network effects, um, and the uniformity of liberal thought in Silicon Valley. So the argument went revealed libertarian arguments like just build your own Twitter to be laughably naive. Well, I don't think it's that laughable because Elon Musk is now having to prove the case in one direction or the other by taking the arrows. So if he takes the arrows and goes down, you see that even somebody, it's not just parlor. Um, that can't compete with Twitter. You can't even let Elon Musk with his billions of dollars in overpaying and overvaluating Twitter. You can't even let somebody who is going to overvalue your product or your company in the gates um, because he's heterodox on a variety of political questions. On the other hand, if this goes through and, and Elon Musk makes moves to improve Twitter, at least in the direction of free speech, and all is well in the world, um, it still shows that he had to face Me Too allegations. Um, he had to face a brutal media slog that didn't come out despite the fact that he was taking corporate welfare in the years before he decided to move into the Twitter space, um, that he was a public figure that was getting not just tons of government money, but billions of, of, of dollars in, in private funding. So he's a public figure for all this time and his interest in Twitter is what makes him face all of these barriers. That's a signal to anybody else who wants to take any other platform in a heterodox direction or in a normal sane direction and push back on wokeness that this is what it takes. You are going to have so many arrows. You will basically be in Monty Python, the, the knight who has no arms or legs by the end of the battle. Um, but so th I, I do think that like this experiment is still playing out and we'll learn more as it plays out in either direction. But the bottom line is the whole case study proves that it's, it's virtually impossible possible just to get in the door even if you're a liberal um billionaire like elon musk yeah you know there's there's a real benefit to having that reality be in the open i think um or at least more in the open than it has been in in the sense like i, I felt the same way about the i, I got got ratioed initially and and then i think a lot of people kind of came around to my take because i tweeted it twice and the first time i i tweeted this take i got completely ratioed and the second time more <laughs> recently everyone was like oh yeah you're totally right um and that was on on the disinformation board i was like actually i think there's an advantage to having this in the open because if you think that this kind of activity is not happening in the federal bureaucracy then you know you're you're naive like it, it is happening whether or not there's something called the board of misinformation right <laughs> um and whether or not you know nino jankowitz is uh you know the 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 sort of target for it um and indeed actually after the demise of of the board um the national pulse uh, which is raheem kassam's outfit is is uh, reporting that actually 
uh, Nina Jankowitz is, uh, it's not even the end of her career, right? Like as in Nina Jankowitz's um, consulting firm is still being paid for the same work. <laughs> they just took the name off it, right? So like, she, this has benefited her career immensely. Um, she was a, a very low profile, like liberal tech writer, and she will now probably get a cable news contract out of this, let alone um, more consulting business. Yeah. And, and the fact that the government is still like doing this. I mean, I, I guess we do get the satisfaction of knowing that um, this particular brand of sort of millennial girl bossery is universally mockable or nearly <laughs> universally mockable. So I guess we do have that benefit. But you know, the actual work is still going on. Um, and so I think there there is an advantage to having that kind of um, systemic, I want to call it corruption, even though it, it may not be corruption in sort of the, the legal or technical sense, but that kind of systemic corruption be so clearly revealed. But, you know, this whole episode with Musk, I think, is also raising um, the possibility that and I really wanted to ask you about this because you are the resident, like sort of tech centric, even in, in sort of a negative way, right? Like as in <laughs> you, you think that technology um, and social media and all of, all of this has really um, sort of accelerated to a great degree a lot of our problems. You, you've, um, you know, you, you're very much all in on the hyper novelty thesis, which is like yes. Brett Weinstein and um and and so I was curious what you think about what really does seem to be some energy in the tech world um, around kind of it because you saw it with that that must tweet right when he was literally like if we keep going with this woke stuff we're never going to reach Mars right mm-hmm. and I don't really I mean I, I do care if we reach Mars I think it'd be cool but like <laughs> it's it's on on the list of priorities of our problems right now I wouldn't say that my primary problem with wokeness is that we might not reach Mars but. I think that sentiment is spreading maybe in the tech community and it's combining with this um, interesting other phenomenon, which is the more the preferential hiring on like race, sex, gender identity um, continues to happen, the more you have competent, mostly straight white men, right? Or Asian men in this business who are going to be passed over, who have real like competencies Mm -hmm. and are not technically political people, but there's going to be more and more of those people um, who have a like sort of vested interest to really dislike the way that society is selecting um, against merit. And uh, my friend, Jeremy Carl over at the, um, so he wrote a piece over at the American conservative called towards the Republican counter elite, um, where he a little bit, um, he, he kind of, uh, and I'm not sure I agree with the conclusion of the piece, which is kind of like, don't put your faith as much in populism, put your faith in the failed, essentially the, the people who would have succeeded in a meritocracy um, into the elite, but then get, you know, they, they get passed over. They don't, they don't get those top jobs. They don't end up uh, being able to, to get, you know, startup cash or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um where do you think that phenomenon is going? Do you think that the tech bros could actually be a a like serious force for good in the kind of battles, or do you think that they're just too like sort of transhumanist, utopian, too uh, they have too rosy a view of of the human future to really um, be like a, a sort of ally for people who are concerned about the direction of the country? I think um, 
there the the tug of war between the transhumanists and the alarmists uh, or the tech skeptics within sort of silicon valley and the tech big tech itself um is is probably the most consequential tug of war more, more so than what we see on capitol hill or in media because um if you watch the the documentary that really opened up a lot of people's eyes to this was called the social dilemma it was on netflix and it was from tristan harris um he was a, a huge part of it. He runs, I think it's called the Center for uh, Humane Tech. I, I think it's called the Center for Humane Tech or Center for Ethical Tech, something like that. He was an ethicist um, at Google. He, he worked in other places, but he was working on Gmail um, for a while. And then he, he founded this nonprofit to combat uh, tax sort of unethical practices that are intentionally basically running these platforms where we've transferred the these huge swaths of political and cultural life onto like slot machines. And so that's where the most interesting energy and momentum has come from in this entire question of tech ethics. It's from former tech employees and people who are still in that milieu, as you might say, and as running in those circles and uh, talking to my French Yes, you're French. Uh, talking to people in those circles. And by the way, I just realized since Inez and I are on video that she's drinking a Le Croix and I am drinking uh, a pre-mixed Negroni because I ran in the door and I had had a very long day. So I, I poured this delightful red, Negr- bright red Negroni. Uh, I do believe that you are fancier than me right now because I call it a LaCroix, first of all. <laughs> well, just because you were speaking French. Uh, you were speaking French, so I thought I would jump in. But um, actually, you usually drink Campari in your um, your Aperol spritzes. That's Inez's little thing. Yeah, like subbing in Campari for Aperol. It's, yeah. It's, uh, I feel like once you go Campari, you can't go back. But so anyway. to, to your point, I, I do think people who have been in the tech industry understand more than anybody else how bad it is because they've intentionally designed it to be bad in a, in a more uh, in a more in a, a different time when we were still basking in the glow of what was considered objectively to be progress. Um, the Obama years, the, the end of the Bush administration, the Obama years, a lot of people were working intentionally to make us spend as much time as possible on Gmail, on Twitter, on Facebook. And that was considered a good thing that would bring us all closer and would, would tighten the bonds of uh, human connectivity. And we now know uh, that's that's really not natural in a lot of ways, and it, it's hyper novel in a lot of ways, as you say, Inez, that has has been unhealthy and that we have struggled to overcome and and turn into the glass being half full instead of half empty. So I think they are the ones that understand this, and the more that they understand this and act as whistleblowers, I think you see them, even like the Project Veritas leaks um, that have come from tech even the leaks that have gone to like Breitbart from tech, it's it's not just what Tristan Harris is doing, but it's other signals just that people in the industry are starting to recognize that they're basically peddling um, something much, much, much worse than cigarettes, but sort of similar in concept. That's where it gets interesting. But, and this is to your point, the last thing I will say is if you are doing that, but you're unmoored from from any virtuous moral foundation, and so what you want to do is just help us progress as a culture and be equitable um, in this this fuzzy sense that might include promoting a version of equity that is that's not actually about equity or equality um, or promoting a version of of 
sexual progress that's actually regression anything like that if you're unmoored from sort of reality and truth because you are fundamentally postmodern um your efforts against tech uh t- the the lack of ethics in tech and your efforts maybe even against transhumanism the, for instance, it's it's really important, I think, to see the transgender campaign, the transgender agenda as a part of the transhuman agenda. But I think you would have a really hard time convincing a lot of people in Silicon Valley of that. Um, so this just brings us back and as uh, to my fundamental and your fundamental, I think, um, cynicism, because if you don't have that foundation, nothing positive is really going to grow. The positive stuff that grows might be in the right direction. It might mitigate harms temporarily, but in the long run, um, it's still to be to, to determine, to be determined unless you sort of understand that there is truth and there is God and there is beauty. Um, good luck. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, some of these guys, I think really are trying to they're they're attempting to create something that is more human and worthy, right? Um, through technology, I think they're they're really trying to put technology in service of that something that does have more more meaning, more vitality in some way. But I, I just don't know if that's possible. And I, I you know, look, they're they, there's they're launching new stuff, they're building new things. There's this magazine, Return Magazine, which is going to be you know. Uh, you know, focused on some of these these problems, going to have you know, I think some some interesting writers. There is the element where that the, these folks are just outside of the political bubble, and I think in some ways that's a really good thing um, because the you know the the sort of um, not to be graphic here, but like the circle jerk on Twitter, between <laughs> both networks, it can get really like oh. sort of um, intellectually masturbatory to continue the. <laughs> <laughs> Here we got we got Elon Musk uh, with his propositions for uh, you know hand jobs for ponies and anyway <laughs> now we have no but it does get like very like uh, sort of I think intellectually obscure and even though it's it's actually is hitting on some some important problems in our society it's like like go talk to go talk to you know twenty Americans and tell me what they think about monarchy, right? Like this is this is um <laughs> some way this is this is not a pragmatic there's no pragmatic contact point with our politics. Um I'm not sure that the tech stuff does either. Uh but as you say, what they do does tend to directly impact people's lives at least several years down the road, right? Like um just because of how powerful that sector is, not just in our economy, but in our lives. Like um so, I mean, I, I think they're out of their our bubble, and that's a good thing. I think they might be in their own bubble. Um, mm. And in some cases, right, I mean, in some cases, the even something like a hyper-meritocratic system can have its own um, sort of really, really deep divisions that are sometimes unhealthy or have to be mitigated by um, other you know, other goods, right? Um, which is not to say that meritocracy, I'm very much, I am a meritocrat, I, I think it's good that we select generally for positions of power on meritocracy. Part of the problem has been selecting on ideology like wokeness. We have ended up with an incredibly incompetent elite, like not just an elite that you and I disagree with in terms of their ultimate goals, but a total inability to do basic things. Um, And I mean, we see that. We see that in the food shortages. We see that in the baby formula shortages. We see that in like withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? Like the inability to even conduct basic um sort of basic uh 
whatever like jobs of yep. an elite and a political elite. They they can't do it uh, because they have hired at this point so aggressively for ideology and not for meritocracy. So I'm I'm not arguing against generally meritocracy. I just you know in some sense the tech world is a meritocracy, and in California there's a corresponding kind of um, you know underclass and and such a huge polarization between the tech world and like the rest of California. Um, and, and it seems to me that too often the kind of mentality that these guys have is, Oh, well, we'll just give them UBI, right? Like the, yes, the people yes, who yeah. are the, the people who are left behind or like, don't understand what the crap we're talking about with all of this stuff, yeah. um, tech stuff. Like uh, the, these people were just going to, you know, we're going to give them UBI. We're going to give them whatever. And I, I I think often that that very optimistic sort of view of human nature and of human progress um in and that kind of promethean vibe um gives me gives me pause oftentimes when I I sort of enter into these tech spaces but you know that might be my deep bias from growing up around these people and and most of them you know this is within us this is a subset of them and maybe they do maybe they do hunger for like more important things more meaningful things more you know and maybe maybe their their competencies can be applied towards those things in a, a meaningful way well we all hunger for those things but their job is to numb us from having that hunger and so they'll promote ubi while also insisting that everybody have a slot machine in their pocket at any given time with an endless scroll function with fortunes to be made on Robin Hood with items to buy from China for nothing on Instagram. Um, so it, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, we all, I mean, humanity persists. Nevertheless, humanity persists. Um, we have our human instincts and our human urges, um, but they will sate us with pornography um, and, uh, you know, and there's an endless supply of pornography that gets increasingly violent. Um, so it distracts us from what that hunger, where that hunger might otherwise take us. Um, and, and so that's why I think, you know, there, there are certain things that are just so important, small things that might seem like small things that are so important for people, consumers to pay attention to because, we're in uncharted territory here. And I think there are things that can be done legally, but as consumers, we have to understand there has to be like 20 more versions of the social, social dilemma because these people do have, they do share every human hunger, but when they are also invested in Bumble and Tinder and uh, every other swipe uh, sexual um, sexual, post-sexual revolution, sort of libertine app. They're literally invested in those. Some of them work in them and some of them just uh, work really hard to normalize them. So when your technology is fundamentally an investment in libertine sexual culture from pornography to dating apps and materialism from Instagram to Amazon, uh, you may have that creeping hunger and if you're really wealthy, you might have the freedom and liberty to divorce your, yourself and your children from the phones and to tell your nanny not to let your kids anywhere near the phones um, and to make sure that they have a nanny to pick them up at the movies and don't need a cell phone. So you, you may be able to like incrementally defeat it. 
but you are invested in and actively normalizing the the numbing agents to make that hunger go away. And that's what's scary. And I think when people talk about, for instance, birth rates, that's why they're saying like we are depriving ourselves we're numbing ourselves away from the will to live i mean suicide rates are on the increase from uh in a lot of age cohorts including the youngest people because it's like you, you the despair in the time when it's never been easier time and place where it's never been easier on paper to be a human being it's so high um and we're losing our will to exist because we're post-truth and we numb that pain with tech uh like literally with tech with with processed food which is tech um and with phones that is tech and wow do i sound like the unabomber right now <laughs> emily emily nope. here on the uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, hey at least you still kept the polish pronunciation of his name which you didn't my parents were like You're emily right. yashinsky yashinsky yeah that's yeah. right <laughs> uh, no no she's she's american now she's like, um no, but uh, I mean, I think what you're saying is true. I think maybe there's a contingent of people in tech who recognize that, but they, instead of wanting to dial back the, the hyper novelty or whatever it is, they want to find a way to recognize these problems within a technological space. Now, maybe that's impossible, um, but I, I, I really shouldn't say much more about it because I understand so little of the actual products that these guys are talking about. I just, whenever I talk to somebody from tech or like uh, James Poulos is a friend, a friend of mine, like every time he says everything, I'm like, one sentence of that was, was like profound and I, I want to think about it. And the next 10 sentences, I have no idea what you're saying. No idea what you're saying, dude. I have no clue. One thing to consider, Inez, is that you're, you're simply very old. Yeah, that's true. You know, I'm, it, but I, I, it's deeper than that. Unfortunately, I, I wish, like, I wish I could just not think about it. But um, <laughs> I, I do think that it's um, we all use this stuff, right? Eventually, whatever they come up with becomes a part of our lives. You know, two to five years later, or if you're like me, six and a half years later, because I consciously try not to adopt every new advancement until it becomes impossible. And then I, I end up on it. So, um, but you know, it, it, I have some hope that, that all of this, this meritocratic talent, because even broadening, broadening it beyond tech, right. It seems like in every institution, there's a, a, a lot of people whether that's in in like media or um, in in large corporations or in tech or even in the arts, it seems like we're pushing out so many people who actually have talent. Whereas, because I used to mock people in DC on the right all the time for saying that like conservatives are the new rebellion or like that it's cool to be on the right now because we're rebellious. Yeah. And I, that always seemed to me to be like a lot of cope. Like it was just not true. Every time I went to one of um, these this kind of panels um, where they would talk about that and they'd be like, oh, well, the, the youth is going to rebel into conservatism. I was always like, that's that's not true. The, the truth is that we're all completely nerdy and dorky and uncool. And that's why we are actually you know, interested in these subjects, whereas actually, you know, cool people usually are not. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's like it, it you can't define 
So it depends on how you define conservative or liberal, right? So like if you're a hack media, uh, or let's just say you're a hacking media reporter who calls Joe Rogan a conservative, then yes, conservatives are awesome. And, and we have finally become the rebels, but, uh, that's really not the appropriate definition of conservatives. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm wondering if if these these kind of passed over, let's call them passed over competence in various fields, like if yeah. they actually can create a, I'm going to double this up this word, but create a creative revival, right? Whether that's in the arts or in tech or whatever it is, because finally the revolution is kind of reaching the center. Um, the revolution is reaching not just in the center of the political spectrum, but reaching into people who really do just want to do a thing really well. Right. They just don't want to have to think about politics. They're not conservative, quote unquote, in the sense that they agree on a bunch of political issues. They are, but they are being pushed out of doing the thing they want to do. Like just to loop it back to Elon Musk for a moment, you know, he wants to go to Mars and he's starting to see that that project is going to be interfered with by the political order. And therefore, he's investing himself in the political order um, in a way. So I'm wondering if that phenomenon, however it turns out for Elon Musk in particular, if a lot of these competent people and guys, let's be honest, they're mostly guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of these competent guys are actually going to build stuff that it's going to attract a talent to the center and the center right in a way that I definitely don't think was there even a couple years ago, but like, let's say five, 10, 10 years ago in DC when, when those panels were talking about how like being on the right is going to be the cool Renaissance. I didn't actually see it happening. Now I kind of see the beginnings of it starting to happen in, in, in a more like substantial and interesting way. So the two places off the record that I've heard people are concerned about this, uh, just like over the last, I don't know, 10 years were the democratic party and Hollywood and in, in Hollywood um, they have implemented these quotas in writer's rooms. So if you sort of wonder why some of the shows just don't, this don't hit like they used to uh, comedy shows in particular, it may be because there are people who are, are simply like not qualified at all. And it's not their fault that they're not qualified, um, but just are not qualified at all. Don't have experience, don't have uh, maybe the same level of talent because the pipeline hasn't yet been developed. You know, there haven't been um, as many opportunities or as much interest, for instance, like you're always going to have more men interested in writing comedy than you are women. And so when you institute a quota, you may like actually just be harming your talent and you can, make the same argument in a lot of different cases but yeah i I heard that immediately uh like within the last 10 years from those two groups um and so i think you we've seen some of that go to substack in media for sure i mean matt taibbi not being or barry weiss not being able to exist without getting publicly flogged by her own colleagues in the press every single day at the new york times is an incredible case study and she does great reporting from people who wouldn't fit in mainstream media and wouldn't be able to publish what they publish for her on substack in mainstream media i think matt taibbi has done reporting that should absolutely be published in rolling stone but won't be on substack so i definitely think it's been there and i think that's sort of shaken some of the legacy media 
a little bit. It's it's shaken them up a little bit. So I feel like we're possibly in the midst of an adjustment process. And we've talked about this um, many times in this that, you know, right now might be the middle phase or the early middle phase of a, a great adjustment where we return to some semblance of cultural sanity. But every time I actually think that, like Elon Musk is a good example, just returning Twitter to the First Amendment standards for what is acceptable and what isn't. Um, the, the freak out from the elites and the establishment, they have so much power. They have amassed so much power. They have hoarded so much power intentionally that I, I feel like we may have already lost the race against the clock. And that doesn't mean you won't and your your grandchildren and their grandchildren won't be able to live um, happy, healthy lives. But it won't be the same uh, path towards living happy, healthy lives in America as, as it was before. That is really pessimistic. But that's where I land on these types of questions. And I remember in must have been 2011 or 2012, our GW YAF chapter uh, hosted SE Cup at school for a talk exactly like what you were saying in this this is 2011 like conservatives are the real rebels on campus i think is what it was i just that that stuff always read as like that word wasn't around then but cringy to me like it always read as kind of thirsty for a little bit of a little bit of mainstream coolness or whatever which is the same reason republicans always go for whenever a celebrity says anything even like vaguely right of center all of a sudden all the conservatives (laughs) try to get them to run for president Ted Nugent. Uh, yeah, no, a hundred percent. And this is the uh yeah, so it, I remember hosting that then, and it's true, right? Like if you are actually um the coolest place to be right now is intellectually is rebuking and seeing how completely stupid and brain dead our elites are. That's actually really always been the coolest place to be. Um, and, and even when it was cool to like Obama, you were much cooler if you like Chomsky and not Obama. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's always sort of been there, but on the right, at least it's, there's such a huge difference. Like Joe Rogan is a really good example. There's a difference between being Joe Rogan combating puberty blockers for minors is not a conservative position. It's a normal centrist position. Now, conservatives will create common cause and will find common cause with people like that, but it's that doesn't put you on the right. Uh, it puts you flat in the center. So I think it's almost like, you know, I, I think it's always been cool and heterodox and uh, contrarian to be on the right by those standards. So I think like David Mamet is extremely cool because David Mamet wrote Glengarry Ross and like did not give any, like he did not give an F he did what he did. And he's always been like conservative and a, a very like mainstream conservative, not even like a weird libertarian conservative. So I think it's always actually been cool. I think it is still cool, but it's not like the cringe sort of definition of what it actually like it, the cringe definition of conservatives are are suddenly the real rebels on campus. Is there truth to it? Yes. Is it going to change the culture? I I don't know except for the fact that Joe Rogan 
and uh, I don't know, Tim Pool and other people who are contrarian but aren't conservative will at least bring us back, will at least help shift public opinion back to the, the center on some questions if even they don't bring it all the way to the right. <laughs> you know, as much as I know deep in my soul that 2012 contained all of the seeds of the problems that we have now. Um, even I get seduced by this, this call, you know, sort of back to normalcy, right. Um, that actually we can just, maybe we can just reset back into like 1999. (laughs) Um, and maybe that would be okay. I mean, things seem so bad all the time that it, it just seems like a really appealing thing to try to reset to 1999, you know, um, I don't know if that's possible. Most days, I think that's not possible. And we're actually going to have to solve some of these underlying problems of, of meaning, of like economic structure, of cultural structure institutionally. Like I tend to be in the camp, like these, these problems will need to be tackled, but they're so difficult to tackle that even I get sort of like, I, I hear the siren song of let's just go back to 1999, you know? Um, <laughs> and speaking, speaking of 1999, uh, we have we we may see the reentry now in a huge way. The big thing that happened this month, of course, is uh, the leak of the Dobbs opinion. Um, and you know, in a way, how, how do you think this this kind of very 1999 issue, because it was sort of illegitimately taken out uh, of of public discourse in 1973, and in the intervening almost 50 years, right? How do you think it's that this issue is going to hit the assuming that there is some kind of at least drastic narrowing of row if not overturning? You know, how is this issue that Americans haven't been able to really politically grapple with for 50 years going to drop itself into our current heated sort of culture war discourse? I think it's been really interesting since the leak to see how much our conversation about abortion has shifted from what it once was and to see in a good way and to see the left flailing at realizing this and again pinning it all on right-wing fundamentalist christian disinformation has been fascinating and uh, like you said inez that it's it's really highlighted how the supreme court did illegitimately move this conversation out of uh, or away from the public and obviously into the courts and into our legal system and then um to a very different i guess litigation between you know states were working on anti-abortion laws as opposed to just like actually having any ability to to have the public um, ban abortion through voting or whatever it is. So all that is to say, um, now that we're actually talking about it and the technology has advanced here, I'm going to say something uh, pleasant about technology, but um, now that we're actually saying it and Democrats have just, because I I actually don't think it's been helpful for the pro abortion left um, in this, this very myopic sense to, have had this conversation taken away from them because in the shadow of Roe, they radicalized, they radicalized immensely. And so, well, I think you're going to have a hard time convincing most Americans to ban abortion before 12 weeks. That is not where our law is right now. Um, It is, it is legal in so very many States in heinous ways after 12 weeks. And the more people are learning about that because the conversation has been kicked wide open in this era of new media. It's not just that the news camera has to catch a sign um, uh, that has a very graphic picture of an aborted baby on it. Um, and that 
somehow makes its way onto the nightly news or you see it at the by chance as you're driving through town and past the courthouse. That's not what it is anymore. It's it's in your social media feed and it's much more advanced and it, it, Democrats aren't saying safe, legal and rare. So that confluence of factors of new media and, and the left's radicalism has the effect of shattering people's conception of what they supported. Um, if you support the, if you, if you support the mainstream democratic position on abortion, you support a, a very radical policy. And so I do think, you know, I'm not optimistic that suddenly everyone's going to be like, wow, yes, life can be- begins at conception. But I am optimistic that people are seeing how deeply evil this is um, after a certain and obviously evil it is after a certain point in the pregnancy where Democrats are now saying, as I read in The Intercept, um, you know, we need to bring back the slogan, you know, abortion on demand with no apologies. Um, and that is the honest position from the left. But for if, if that's what you're going back towards and your, your effort to defend this agenda, you are only going to be helping the right and the, the anti-abortion position. Yeah, you know, it occurs to me, I think Philip Hamburger was one of the first people to, or at least one of the first people I read that laid this out, um, this concept that I'm about to touch on out in a more explicit way. But it's it's interesting, you know, the left obviously has a very fraught relationship with small D democracy, right? Um, and and yes. democratic input. And the way they've kind of dealt with that, it seems to me, is to be very much in favor of, of structurally sort of, for example, plebiscite, right? Basically, I mean, California is basically yeah. a direct democracy. You need 50% plus one to put a amendment into the Constitution, which means everything is baked in. I mean, the mass of California spending is already baked into the Constitution. There's and things are going you know, great in California. By yeah, the way. wonderful. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's also, you know, constitutional amendments about how many rounds are in a boxing match or allowed in a boxing match. Um, it's just this <laughs> massive document uh, that totally dispenses with a lot of, for example, the virtues that the founders saw in genuinely Republican or representative government, right? Having some kind of mediation between popular will um, and, and, and policy. But like at the same time, they don't want a lot of these really important issues that are political with a capital P, right? What could be more political than something like abortion? Um, what could be more political than, for example, the laws that we have regulating our elections and who can vote? <laughs> I mean, these are these are very political issues. And um, so the Democrats, are, or I shouldn't even say Democrats, but the left generally has been able to do this weird jujitsu where they're in favor of expanding the franchise to 16 year olds, but at the same time, they don't want, um, you know, they want what we are able to vote on to be very, very tightly constrained by the opinions of what really has to be called these days a ruling class, right? So on abortion, it's the Supreme Court that has illegitimately, and I use that word illegitimately because, I mean, Hell, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before yep. she got on the court, uh, acknowledged that Roe has very little basis legally. Um, the, like the constitutional structure of Roe is very highly criticizable, right? It's very shaky. I mean, Kiel Amar, who's also on the left, I mean, he he's criticized it. Like, there's plenty of prominent people. Even my professor, I think, um, in law school, who had worked for the Obama administration, but he 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 acknowledged that Roe was a bad decision, right, on, on the merits of the law. Um, so. 
in this sort of illegitimate way, they, they just yanked that issue out and maybe now it'll be restored to politics. But there, there is this sort of push-pull thing where they want more people to vote all the time um, and higher turnout. And they complain, even though like in Georgia, they complained about even though there was huge turnout in Georgia, despite the quote unquote, you know, the, the, the Jim Eagle laws, as, as I would say. Um, but they, they want a high turnout and they want lots of people voting and they want to expand the franchise, but they want to constrain the issues that they can actually weigh in on. Whereas, for example, when people chose Donald Trump, right, that was that was unacceptable. Um, and, and it justified the fact that Trump was outside of this essentially ruling consensus on, on a handful of issues like foreign policy and trade that made him illegitimate um, to the point where, uh, you know, our, our intelligence apparatus felt justified in, in um, you know, circumventing some very, very important, not just laws, but principles of Republican government in order to thwart Donald Trump. Um, so there is this like weird tension where they want more people to vote all the time, but they want them to vote only on a pre-selected slate of acceptable views and issues uh, for for a very small percentage of the population. Well, and they also want to take away agency through the administrative state and through the surveillance state, whether it's surveillance capitalism or the government's official surveillance apparatus. They want to take more agency away and they want to intimidate people into compliance um, and, and take away that sort of sense of freedom, both through the private sector and the public sector. Um, and because they like fundamentally do not trust the people, even though they really think they do. I, I think there's actually a very serious ideological inconsistency because the rhetoric is all about democracy, democracy, democracy. But when you have a surveillance state, um, like ours and which, by the way, they support increasing you mentioned the disinformation governance board um we don't actually know what they really wanted that to do they don't really know what they wanted that to do but any any like infinite like not fully articulated new government agency focused on combating disinformation is going in a negative direction um which everyone sort of knows intuitively at this point so all that to all that is to say you're right and i think the the broader point from my perspective is that the media their total control of our institutions and this gets to your last subject matter your last big question their control over all the institutions is not doing them a whole lot of favors anymore because what's happening in their power in this monopoly is that their intellectual output is becoming a lot a lower quality um, and the rest of the public that doesn't exist, you know, in that monopoly or in support of that monopoly is going to eventually see that. So when you, when every institution is convincing you that this uh, thing that you think is democracy is democracy and they aren't challenging it and they aren't offering alternative perspectives, you're becoming increasingly, um, I, I increasingly out of touch with reality. So I, I think it's, this, is another really good example. It's not as though there aren't ideological inconsistencies on both uh, ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between, um, as we we both know and as. But there is an, an acute 
effect happening um, for the side that does own every institution because it's insulating them from criticism and making them a whole lot worse. And I think this is a good example of how caught off guard they are when democracy actually reigns. They don't like it. Um, it's, it's, you know, they'll find a million excuses to explain from disinformation, which is how they explain Hispanic voters shifting right um, to, you know, capitalism, whatever it is. Racism. Um, Russia, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, again, I I, I am to some limited, I, I'm pessimistic about the system and we'll see which way the Musk thing goes, but I am, I do actually sense that there is something shifting where that power, whether it's in media or in tech or in Hollywood or in like, th- there really is something happening to that power that's making it more brittle that you can't really overuse. And, and more importantly, you can't overuse that kind of power in a way that's nakedly incompetent. Like I'd like to think that the reason that people are, are sort of waking up to the way that our system actually works um, is because of some, you know, sort of ideological or, or deeper attachment to, principle or freedom or or um, uh, the American way of life in the past or any of that. And some of that might be true, but I do think we can overlook just the <laughs> the force of sheer incompetence, right? When people get really frustrated that things stop working and we are coming perilously close to stuff just not working in the USA. Oh, totally. Where totally. Like, parents can't get baby formula at Target. Um well- the infrastructure bill, Biden tied an infrastructure bill to a radical agenda, and a lot of the infrastructure didn't pass because of that, because some of it was saved for the build back better bill, um, because they couldn't agree on, on what, on whether infrastructure was human infrastructure or just freaking bridges and roads. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing about all these bills and how they get named. Right. Um, and, and the left has been very effective in the past at smearing the right is basically against these kinds of basic competencies like building bridges. When in reality, at least most of the time, the right was saying bridges are only 5% of what you're spending on. Right. Um, but I, I do think that once fundamentally, I mean, the American middle class is just not, not used to shortages i don't think the american middle class is going to suffer for a hundred years like like russia no, you're right, right? Yeah. uh they're just they're not used to this. i mean maybe i'm wrong maybe they maybe they will but there no, does I, think, I actually think it. you're right about that but the question of like where if it's ever corrected to a, a sort of fulfilling healthy wonderful thing is a different question than um whether we have some sort of like fundamental freedoms and sanity back and um, I actually think you're, you're probably right about that. There's, you know, people have never existed in our system of government, really. So, um, and it's produced pretty good results so far, uh, contra what I think, you know, Patrick Deneen or others would argue, reasonably so. It's a good argument, but I still think relatively it's been good. <laughs> uh, well, incompetency seems to have a destructiveness all of its own, um, but Emily, thank you so much, as always, for for coming on High Noon and and chatting through these things with me. Uh, You can catch these After Dark episodes where usually Emily is not the only one drinking Campari. Uh, You can catch those every every last Wednesday of the month. and uh, Emily, thanks again for, for joining us every month here. Yeah. And as the only thing I would say is please introduce me in the future with my full title, which is Senior Fellow at IWF. Senior Fellow at IWF. Well, I mean, your joint, your, 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 your route to the Chrome Caucus is just getting shorter and shorter, Emily. I mean, those, those old jokes are going to, 
they're, they're going to hit different from the other side of 30. But you know, Inez, uh, you will always be the same exact uh, amount older than me. You can never truly close that gap. So enjoy, I, enjoy it. <laughs> I, I milk the the crap out of the two weeks that I'm two years younger than my husband instead of one. So I'm an <laughs> expert at milking that. I'll find out a way to do it. Uh, Emily, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Inez. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stefan, including After Dark, is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org, with the exception of the latter, all platforms that Emily thinks are destroying (laughs) our world and our humanness. But in any case, be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.